Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello and welcome back to Books and Nachos, the book review podcast continuing our education at Hogwarts in year four with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I'm Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Brock. And this is the book that introduced me to the name Harry Potter. Before this book came out, I'd never heard of a Harry Potter If you ask me what a Harry Potter is, I would think it's somebody who does a lot of ceramics and has a lot of body hair. I had no clue until on the news, people lining up to get some huge ass children's book. Yeah, it was like Barnes and Noble was like now a concert hall. It was like they were rock stars. Like, oh, who's playing tonight? Oh, Harry Potter. Uh. And the angle on the news was, can you believe it's for a book? (laughs) We're Americans. We don't read. (laughs) That was the point of view, right? Well, and for a kid's book at that. Yeah. And let's just stress this fact. I read a lot as a kid. I was never even needed the encouragement. But like 734 pages, I don't think I tackled a book that size until sixth or seventh grade whenever I read it. Like, this is a massive book for any child to undertake. I agree. And the funny thing is, most kids, by the time they get through book three, don't care. I've never heard of a kid stopping reading Harry Potter because of the length of the books. I have just today. A neighbor's kid just finished book seven, and they posted on Facebook because she's so proud of it. And they she's paused because certain parts because it got very intense. She had put the book down, kind of like Joey Tribbiani putting The Shining in the freezer. Let it sit there for a few minutes or days, who knows, and went back to it. But the length of the book... It's, it's amazing how much people just do not care how long these books are, or it doesn't seem to be a deciding factor, whether or not they continue with the series. Well, it means that they're fans. Like, you don't mind if there's an eternal story being told if you like the central character at the heart of it. And by this point, we're three established bestsellers. I think this book was actually, like, released at the same time, right? Like, this is the first one where America, UK, people got Goblet of Fire at the same moment. And this is the book I mentioned on our first podcast that this summer of tw- summer of 2000, when this book came out, I started reading the books because this the anticipation for this book's release had my co-worker uh, rereading the books, etc. So this is really where I came in as well. I have a great memory of reading this book for the first time. I went to Boston for my good friend's wedding, and I had this book with me, and then I visited with my parents from Boston all the way to Florida at their Florida house, and there's a beautiful lake there. And I sat on a beautiful wooden bench swing, and I read some of the book. I took the canoe out, and I put the book in a nice plastic bag. And in the daytime, because I couldn't do it in the afternoon because people came back with their jet skis and things like that, and the wake on the on the lake would not be... You couldn't be able to stay in a canoe without getting sick or indoor wet. But I was able to do that like 10 in the morning with a book in the middle of a lake, letting the boat just drift, the canoe just drift, reading Harry Potter. It was just the most amazing 
way to get in, engrossed in a book is by reading by water with nothing but nature around you. I have never read a book like that before or since. <laughs> and I certainly didn't do it this time for this reread, but it is one of my favorite instances of ever reading a book. And I am glad to say it was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And I read this right after book three because I'd really started to get into the series. And this was probably around 2002 still, early 2003. I remember finishing it, and it wasn't going to be that long of a wait before The Order of the Phoenix was actually released. Order of the Phoenix would be the first one that I would read newly published. And I, of course, read this three days ago. It took me two days. I, originally, I was like, I'm just going to start it in the morning. No boat, Brock. But I was going to like, <laughs> gonna make a day of it. And then I just really, by the time I got to the length of the books, as it had been, like 300, 350, I'm like, you know, I just want a break. I don't think I want 700 pages of Harry Potter today. So I did take that second day to finish it off. Can I ask you about that? Uh, was the second half of the book, did it read faster for you than the first half, or did it not make a difference? I did not notice a difference. And I would say that it has a very good hook right from the beginning, because we get Voldemort. Mm -hmm. There's no more like, oh, we're teasing him, he's a voice behind the walls, or like one of his disciples is maybe breaking out of prison. Voldemort himself sitting in a chair with snakes, and that's a great way to start. That helps me want to get through the 734 pages. It reminds me of the first book, because only in that first book did you have a scene told from a point of view other than Harry's, and it was that opening chapter where they're all coming together at the Dursley's house to deliver the baby because all of that stuff had gone down with Voldemort. Mm. And so that it opened this way really brought me back to that. And it is a good hook because they're going to have to keep you on that line for about 650 pages before <laughs> they reel you in. Actually, I want to do a slight correction on that. I believe the first chapter of the first Harry Potter book is told from Vernon Dursley's point of view before the scene with the wizard. So, yes, Vernon Dursley in here from, and this is the caretaker's point of view. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. I just want to have that little correction there because uh, Vernon Dursley is in this book, but he really isn't, thankfully. What I also like about this tease in the beginning is that Harry is present because he has this dream. So, they have this hook the way they keep it hooked is that they keep bringing it up because he keeps referencing it in his head over and over again because he was present. It's a very smart way to keep Voldemort, for lack of a better term, on the mind <laughs> throughout the book because you're right, he doesn't show up until 600 pages in. And more importantly, because I had been noticing this pattern of like, oh, I'm going to give you a bad guy and then demystify them. There's a part of me that's been frightened we'd get to the very end of this saga and he'd end up, like, hugging and dancing with Voldemort. Like, the scar was all a misunderstanding and, <laughs> like, no, he's not really bad. I'm like, oh, if, if, if this all leads to, like, people aren't as bad as you think, I need a bad guy. You know what I mean? At this point, Sirius Black, maybe I'll grow to like that character, but that was kind of a disappointment that he ended up being this nice godfather character. I'm so glad at the beginning here, he's killing caretakers and just letting you know there's absolutely no redemption for him here in this story. He is here to kill. And Quirrell, I guess, is the only person we've seen die in these books. So it's been a while since we've seen actually somebody die. And they do it right off the bat, setting the tone that this is on the table now. And it's important to set this tone early on in this book because 
especially of what happens later, and especially what happens in the last 150 pages. And this does kind of follow the pattern of each book getting a little more mature based upon the age of the characters, but... Of course, that only works if you were one of the initial readers, right? I mean, if you come into this late, you could be seven years old and reading all four books, and I don't know, would seven-year-olds be scared by this? Yes, indeed they would be. So when my daughter was reading these books, we insisted she read the books before seeing the movies so she could understand what was going to happen, visualize it in her head, and as I mentioned, if it gets too intense, put it down, let it sit, or talk to us about it. And I believe this book was the first time she actually did talk to us about it. Not the first murder, the end of the book, of course. And she was eight or nine, I can't remember exactly how old, but she was third grade, I think, so it was a big deal. And I always think of the books talking about the age of the readers getting older. We talked about that. I always think about the books themselves they get more mature as the characters get more mature, right? So this book, they're 14, and we open this book with a ginormous amount of, we are not just the only wizards in the world. At 14, you get a bigger worldview about what's going on in the world, and you have feelings and, and puberty and things like that too. So she covers all of that in this book. This is how I always took it. The book is longer and bigger because the kids' ideas, thoughts, and their world is bigger. I don't buy that hype for the first three. You've been telling me you guys felt like they incrementally got more sophisticated, more mature. I felt like they were at the exact same reading level until this one. And even this one, like I pick up the cover, I don't know what's coming. The kid looks happy on it. All the death and like the fact that there's going to be like death eaters crashing this big Quidditch match at the beginning. I'm like, none of that is on the cover. The cover is a happy kid and the other competition from this Goblet of Fire Triwizard Cup and maybe a Dragon Tail. That's the only scary thing on here. You wouldn't necessarily think cracking the cover here, this was going to be any different. But I will agree with you this time, guys. This one's more mature. Did you guys enjoy the 150-page World Wizarding Quidditch Cup thing with all the background and all the information? Because it's a lot of information about how big this world is. They introduce port keys. They introduce all these characters that come up later on. They introduce societies, classes. They introduce all sorts of stuff. Ron and, and Harry recognizing girls, those temptress siren-type characters who are the mascots for the Bulgarian team. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff they drop in these first 150 pages that I just adore reading every time because it really expands this world to an immense world. Like, it's not just a country. But I can see how some folks who are not into the series may not care for that and might say, hey, get to the point. Did you guys feel that way at all? Or did you enjoy all of this additional world building that she was able to expand on now in book four? I will say yes, and it should have been short. <laughs> I do like the fact that it's bigger. I like the fact that Quidditch, it's kind of the spotlight is taken away from it with this very dark attack. Like it almost feels like a page ripped from today where we have both sort of a hate group and like a terrorist attack that I wasn't expecting that. Certainly I thought, oh, we were just going to, you know, have a sports moment. And truly that darkening, the fact that it is, yeah, we get the idea that wizards are from all over. Over the globe now congregating that they have these major events that Quidditch isn't just a kid's game at a wizard school all of the expansion is right but I'll just go ahead and put it out there does this book need to be this long absolutely not agreed on both counts I mean at this point I believe J.K. Rowling much like Stephen King started 
to become overly indulgent. When you get to a certain point of success, you can say you know better than your editors, and you know better than your publishers, and you have the sales to back it up, you've got the juice to do what you want, and that's the only reason to write a 700-page kid's book when the other books haven't been that. And I'm gonna bring this up on Now Playing, so let's have this conversation twice. The whole plot is to get Harry Potter to touch one thing. Yes. We're going to read hundreds and hundreds of pages when you could have just said, Harry, hold this for me. Okay, so that was something that I had to figure out myself, and they go into a great deal of trouble to explain that you cannot apparate in and out of Hogwarts, you cannot have a port key unless it's registered, Harry Potter is untouchable at home, he's untouchable at school. They go through a lot of hoops to make sure that we know at Hogsmeade, I don't understand why they don't grab him at Hogsmeade, I don't understand that at all, I still don't understand that, I've read this book four or five times. Don't get why I don't grab him at Hogsmeade. But beyond that, they go to all these hoops, yes, the entire plot is extremely convoluted to get Harry to touch the Triwizard Cup, which is a port key, which is a registered port key, so he was able to change the port key to a different location to get his blood to kill him. Now, if all he needed was the blood, he could have forcibly taken it Tuesday. Yes, he could have done that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Art class, you know? Yeah, like, I don't know how Moody would have done it and not get thrown out of school. Or, you know, what you could have done maybe during the time he's teaching all those curses in class. He could have done it that time in front of the whole class. Oh, my God, he did that to Harry. And collected the blood, set, you know, shipped it in the FedEx owl to Voldemort, and you'll be done. I think part of it also was that Voldemort wasn't fully cooked yet. He needed some time to grow, literally. But I agree with you completely that it's a giant, convoluted, kind of like Silva in Skyfall kind of plot that really needs a lot of stuff to happen just right to make it work. There is one other thing, and I don't know that it's really important, but by setting it up this way, Harry is yet again kind of isolated from the rest of the school. Even though he's got this cool rep and everyone thinks he's a celebrity, they've taken it back to where they took it in, in book two, that now lots of people don't trust him. They don't believe him. You know, in that Chamber of Secrets, they thought maybe he was the heir that was going to do something horrible. And here, everyone thinks he cheated. It's a competition where you have to be 17-year-old to play, we know this kid's 14. Does he just think that he, the rules don't apply? I like that everyone kind of turns on him, really, even Ron, for a spell. Like, everyone seems to think this kid is too big for his britches, and maybe that's part of the fun for Voldemort as well. For a spell. I, very cute. Yeah, I like that. I agree with you. I love those aspects of this book, that the school turns on him, the Potter stinks buttons. I love that Ron it, it just doesn't want anything to do with him. I also kind of like Harry's reaction to it. You know, instead of being like, oh, woe is me, he's like, well, screw you all. I, I love that. I just, you know, he's 14. He's like, screw you. Uh, you're my best friend. You're treating me like crap. Well, screw you. And it's it's kind of like Ron had a row with Hermione in the last book. Now he has Harry. It's good to see that Ron is is a teenage boy. You know, I think it's kind of fun. You know, Stuart, when we were growing up, you and I had our falling outs over some stupid things. But I have to say, Ron seems to be picking a fight with no motivation. I mean, he's had three years of going through with Harry Potter, who is always in the middle of everything, and that he doesn't believe Harry didn't do this, and he's going to be mad at Harry for quite a while in this book. It felt under-motivated. I thought the way that they made up after the first Triwizard task 
was pretty convenient that Ron says, oh my God, no one wished that upon themselves. Okay, I agree with you. You didn't do it on purpose. I, I don't buy that because Diggory did it on purpose and so did Crumb and so did Fleur Delacour. So it was a way for them to get back together and all happy. And that's great. The other thing about this book is how do you feel about reading tween age romance stories? Because you're going to have a lot of ink devoted to Harry likes Cho, but ends up asking out somebody else because Crumb asked Cho out. And then Ron is jealous because Hermione's going out and not with him, but yet he can't admit that. And Stuart, I'm looking to you because you've had <laughs> impatience with the boarding school drama in the past, wanting more villains. How did you cotton to the drama that occurred here? Well, I saw it happening last book like there was a moment during the Quidditch match where he like Harry gets distracted by how cute the seeker is and it was this girl Cho and I'm like hmm I've been having a working theory about who Harry is going to end up with and it's been Ginny up until this book and now I'm like hmm now we got this Cho to deal with I think it's that age Arnie I think when you're 14 these things take precedence you have to to ignore them to make them sexless to make it all about the thriller plot while that may be more satisfying for my interest as a you know middle-aged man I recognize that if you're capturing the spirit developmentally about where kids are you've got to include the romance stuff and I think it's well integrated with all the other conspiracy and gamesmanship that's going on I completely agree, especially since there's gamemanship going on with who they get the dates are. You mentioned Crumb asks Hermione, and Cho goes with Diggory. So it's kind of fun that the competitors who are in the Triwizard Cup with Harry are competing for the same women that our protagonists want to go with the ball with, whether or not they admit it. I love that Hermione stands up for herself and tells Ron, I'm not a last resort. And I love that Neville asked Ginny. And I love that these people that we've known now for four books are pairing up and trying new things and being kids. The fact that this book takes that all that time for the Yule Ball and all this intra-wizard stuff, whatever excuse it was, I think is perfect for this book because of what the themes are about these characters growing older. I just adore how Ron is so stupid towards how he handles Hermione and his feelings for her. I've been there. I've done that myself. Maybe not to the extent this guy's blockhead like he is, but certainly I have moments of, oh gosh, I guess she liked me. I didn't realize it. Yeah, it's kind of fun to read this stuff. I have to agree. I mean, but here's the thing is by book four, I'm into these characters. And I do think while the book is indulgent in its length, it's also the only way to give every character their due. You know that they're really trying to do that when Hagrid has a romance going on and they're going to then have a fight because Madame Maxine doesn't want to admit she's half giant because giants are murderous and things. It's both world building and character driven in a character that hasn't had a whole lot to do. I mean, when they made him a teacher last time, you could tell they're like, all right, we've got Hagrid hanging around. How do we keep him important? Yeah, that is always the challenge for any saga as it goes on. Once you get finished with a character, you can't kill everyone. It's not utilitarian to just be like, you've done what you need, now get out of here. You have to keep coming up with plots. And while you might have had an A-line story, I felt like Haggard was so important in that first book and in introducing the world. I mean, he's literally the one that brings Harry to Hogwarts. Now, you could live without him. But they've tied him well to the themes of romance that are going on. 
And I don't know, school dances were always lame, right? Like they make it even more lame by having it on Christmas Eve. Can you imagine missing Christmas for a school dance? Damn. It's Christmas Day. And no, even worse. I want presents and I'm two-stepping it. And normally Harry has the school to himself with a few friends and now the entire school's sticking around because they want to go to this ball. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I didn't get the impression that Maxine was really into Hagrid in the book. But I do know that he liked her. But that's okay. They're doing all this with characters we know. And you mentioned about B-plots and C-plots. To have something for Hermione to do, they gave her the spew angle, the trying to fight for elvish rights. That's kind of funny to me. I was thinking about you while reading that, Brock, because I'd never really seen book two as the huge racial inequality metaphor that you brought it up as. And now it seems like... (laughs) Rowling is saying, oh, did you see that as that? No, they really do like being slaves. No. They don't really like being slaves. They have no idea what else to do with themselves if they're not. Also, we have two house elves here. We have Dobby and we have Winky. And Winky is slavishly devoted to her masters even after she's been sacked. And she is a major player in this book without us really noticing it or knowing it because of what she facilitates to be the solution to the murder she wrote kind of mystery. The thing we're not going to know until we know it and then everything comes together. But Hermione also, when she stops doing spew halfway through, which is strange, she picks up on trying to defeat another theme of the book, celebrity, in Rita Skeeter, who is the tabloid reporter who decides to print what she wants and has angles that aren't necessarily true and somehow she's able to get these scoops and information that most people could not have gotten this is where i'm talking about bloat i mean uh, yes hermione's around and this is not a hermione book she's really not going to get to do a lot of cool stuff the way that she has some of the other books so we got to give her something but as you indicated they've given her a subplot that just stops Like, I think it's really interesting they brought back Dobby and complicated it with the ideas. I mean, we saw this in America. There was the mentality of those working in the house as opposed to those working in the field. Some people felt like they had it good and wanted to stay in slavery. That's really interesting if your novel is going to support those themes. But if this is going to be about a contest and Hunger Games and celebrity, you don't need... Dobby and Winky and all of that. You just get rid of that. Like, that was a mistake. So I think Rita Skeeter is also a big old F you to some of the reporters or newspapers or people who weren't very kind to Rowling in the first three books, right? I was wondering that. That's how I always took it. And you can't believe everything you read. Even on her Twitter feed? <laughs> yes, exactly. She She's able to dig herself into her own <laughs> holes. She doesn't need outside help all the time. However, I don't necessarily like Rita Skeeter in this book. I don't necessarily think we need her for the, some of the themes of celebrity in this book. I, I think she can work, but I have outside information for you that might bring some light to it. There was a other subplot in this book that Rita Skeeter took over. So halfway through writing this book, Rowling discovered she had a major plot hole. She has never told us exactly what it was, but the gist we got from it was there was a Weasley cousin who was a first year who was sorted into Slytherin, who is taking all the information she gets from Harry and Ron and Hermione because she's a Weasley and they keep her around because she's a Weasley, even though she's in Slytherin. And then it gets published and put out by Malfoy and his friends and they know information about stuff and they Basically, she's a mole without trying to be a mole or trying to win friends or whatever kind of concept she was going for with that. 
And it turned out that there's no way she needed this girl to have information there's no way she could have had. So therefore, she changed that character into Rita Skeeter and into an Animangus, which I believe is part of the reason why Spew is dropped and Rita Skeeter comes in and why Rita Skeeter has this more important subplot than you would think towards the end of the book with Hermione. I think it's an important subplot if you think about the fact that Harry is unpopular in this book. And if we want to explore where one finds... Uh, one sense of purpose that he can't turn to the newspaper and, and ride on the legend of, well, you're the boy that defeated Voldemort anymore. I think that having her as a sort of sub-villain, a, a comical villain, until we can get to Voldemort makes sense. But yeah, we just need to prune some of these supporting characters and just say, hey, I don't need to check in with everybody, every book. If you're not really important in this book, please don't devote needless subplots to your elf causes. I do want to say that Rita Skeeter and people going against Harry Potter and they believe things they read in the Daily Prophet and what is truth and what is fiction comes into major play in the next book. So she is setting it up beautifully here. But for it in this book itself, it's not as strong as I think it could be. I understand what she's doing, but later on it comes in in gangbusters. Yeah, I do wonder if she had written the whole saga before anything got published, if she would have made some different choices. Well, this is the first book that I really feel is being written with knowledge of what's to come. Before this, it felt like she was making it all up as she went along. I think by the time she got to book three, she started to have some more solid ideas of what was going on with James Potter and the previous generation. But now, I think she knows her endgame. She probably doesn't have it all outlined, but has little notes of, oh, this will be a nice ending for this character, and this will be a good thing for that character. And she's starting to set up things here in book four that I expect to pay off in books five, six, and seven. Whereas Scabbers the Rat being set up in book <laughs> one to pay off in book three does not feel exactly earned. I completely agree with you. You're absolutely right. This is the turning point. This is the middle book in the series. This is where it all changes and where the end game is in sight. Apparently, she had said that she knew the ending, the last chapter, way ahead of time, whether or not it was in book one. But she, sometime around now, she knew what the last chapter was going to be. However, she did know that she had to cut out stuff, remember, from book two, because she didn't want to put all that out there yet. And... She held that back for, that's going to come back in six. So we do know that she had some more stuff that she held back, and now she's able to really plan ahead about where she's put this or that. I think the reasons this book and the next book are so long is because she has so much to get out there in time for the last, for the finales. And I'm reading all of this without the knowledge of what those will be. I think I'm the only one on this that doesn't know how it all ends. So where I see extraneousness, you see important groundwork. If it helps, I have no memory of how this all ends. My only remembrance of book seven is camping. A lot of camping. <laughs> so we, ha we haven't talked about Mad-Eye Moody and Barty Crouch Jr. and the Polyjuice Potion. I like that it was Polyjuice Potion because it's something that the readers are familiar with. There's invisibility cloaks as part of this whole Barty Crouch thing. So there is something that Harry has we thought was unique to Harry that other people have. So there are elements that the readers 
theoretically could theorize while they're reading about what's happening and what the mystery is, although there's no way I think anyone would have guessed that there's somebody in, a, in an empty chair at a World Quidditch Match Cup in that the guy who's drinking from his flask, who's an or who's a weirdo, well, I thought I thought he was a drunk, but no, he's just drinking the polyjuice potion. You gotta drink it every once every hour or you're not gonna be able to stay that way. And they drop clues here and there, but honestly, it's a huge convoluted plot with this guy at Hogwarts, but when they reveal it all at the end and with all this Penaceve stuff and all that stuff, it's a lot of information, but somehow I find it incredibly strangely satisfying that even though it shouldn't be, because it's a lot of information late in the book with the with the Penaceve and then the Barty Crouch reveal, I adore that we were taken for this ride. It kind of reminds me a tiny bit like uh, the usual suspects that you think you you know what's going on, but you actually don't. Did you guys get annoyed by that giant, giant data dump and reveal, or did you enjoy it like I did? I would say this, Brock, that honestly, the ministry stuff like has been something that has slowly creeped into this narrative that I've always been ignoring. Like I knew Ron's dad worked there and that caused some stuff to happen in the background, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here in this book because it's going to take me to Hunger Games or the Maze Runner. It's going to be about kids competing and death-defying acts. That's the stuff that I paid attention to first read. What was kind of going on with those Crouch characters and what have you, a little confusing. I thought the only thing I picked up on was it seemed like Fudge was in on it. If there is a conspiracy of Voldemort loyalists known as Death Eaters, it really seemed like... Cornelius Fudge, who I think is the head of everything, like was making a lot of apologies. I don't know if that means that he's in alliance or he's just Neville Chamberlain with Hitler and just pacifying and allowing the evil to spread. But I imagine that will continue to happen under his leadership until a Winston Churchill type steps in at some point and says no more. I found myself getting somewhat confused with all of the layers of the politicians and things like that. I did like, it feels like we're in the same world we have been before. Why reinvent the wheel? If you need somebody to sneak around and you've introduced the idea of invisibility cloaks, why have another way to do that? If you need to impersonate someone and you've already introduced the polyjuice potion, obviously these 12-year-olds aren't the only ones in the entire wizarding world who can do that. And so I like that, again, the verisimilitude that it adds, but I think that sometimes the world expanding can become confusing because we're still seeing this all through the myopic view of Harry Potter, and sometimes I could become confused between who's the Minister of Magic versus who this crumb guy was, and... Right, yeah. We're not here for those characters. We barely want to pay attention to the adults, and I'll just say this. I believe Rowling now writes mysteries... I can see why they're not blockbusters. Like, I don't feel like her best skill is disguising the whodunits and setting up all the twists. Not to say I even guessed at this time, you mentioned Mad-Eye Mooney. I did not guess how that character was being concealed by another character. But I just don't think she oftentimes has to write too much to explain her twists. And I feel like this is where I want you to cut. So what about the ending then with Voldemort when he returns in the graveyard and the emotional priority incantatum moment when his parents come to his aid and he speaks to his parents for the first time and all of that. Cedric's death, did that hit you emotionally? Did you get invested there? Did you enjoy the return of Voldemort finally? 
that's a huge moment in this series, huge moment in this book, and nothing's ever going to be the same now that he is back. That scene is a fan favorite for a variety of reasons. For me as a fan, I love the fact that it's scary, it's intense, it's creepy, you don't know how Harry's going to get out of it, and then it's emotional that all those people came back. And it's remarkable that I've read this book and seen the movie quite a few times over the years, and this scene, is it still always works for me. You guys, Stuart, your first time, Arnie, your second. Did this scene play based on the book you read before it? Did you enjoy The Return of Voldemort? I very much was glad that we have the big bad coming. It's like, now I know what the story of Harry Potter is. Previously, it felt like Wizarding School 90210, where we're just going to follow these kids year to year in school, and they're going to have some misadventures. And now I see, if you were to take the entire arc, what it is supposed to be, Harry Potter versus Voldemort. And... I think that helped excite me when I read this book for the first time is it's like, oh, we're getting there now. We're really getting to where there's going to be stakes and there's going to be a war. We're getting far outside of school. And I did wonder, how in the world are you going to tell us high school stories when there's a war going on and we really care about the war? I mean, it's not like Harry's going to just stay in school and not get involved in the war, but by the same token, high schooler versus Hitler isn't exactly a logical step. But I didn't care about Cedric. I mean... He's a kid. I don't feel Rowling made me care enough about the other competitors in the Triwizard Tournament to feel like it was a loss that Cedric Diggory wouldn't come back next book. A kid dies. That's the issue, is a kid dies for being in the wrong... He says, kill the spare, and just nonchalantly just kills this kid. Doesn't even give him a fighting chance. The kid doesn't have a moment to understand what the hell is going on. He's in the, literally the wrong place at the wrong time. Kill the spare. It's dark, it's dirty, it's raw, and this kid is a 17-year-old kid who can't have a life. That's sad. So that's what hits me about it. Not about this kid's not going to be in the, in the books anymore. It's because of the situation. It's terrible. I agree it makes Voldemort look tougher, but I wouldn't bet against Harry. What's pretty clear about their battle is that, like, if Harry can pull out the parents and all of that stuff, like, it's really not going to be that hard for him in book seven. I just know it. I just know it's going to be <laughs> anticlimactic, and damn it, his parents are going to, like, run out and, like, maybe they're even going to come back to life. I don't know, but I imagine cheese. For all of the starkness and the rawness you're talking about, this is telling me... Be prepared for a thick old slab of cheese when they do this for the rematch. Oh, man, you are so cynical. You know, when I first time I read this, my parents were both alive. But now, does it hit me any differently? No. It hit me the exact same way it hit me the first time I read it. That this boy who's never known, the only thing he's ever really wanted to have is a family. And his parents were there in this one moment out of a freak instance because their wands are linked. The link between Harry and, and Voldemort is now stronger. His power, that it, the love power, is gone because Voldemort was reincarnated with Harry's blood. So what killed Quirrell and protected Harry, that's gone. So Harry is now open season, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that changed here. All of that hits me every time I read it. I don't see it cheesy. I find it sentimental, but not cheesy. I would just say in general, none of these books have touched me on like a deeply emotional, personal level. I've, I still feel, you know, like... They're pot boilers. They're gripping yarns. They're stuff that pulls you in. You want to know what happens next. But I haven't felt the full weight of melodrama yet. I don't know that I will. I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for these books to do that. 
And I'm somewhere in the middle. I do enjoy spending time with the characters. I want to see where their lives go, both in school and in war. But yes, I'm not so attached that I'm losing track that I'm reading fiction here and that nobody's really dying. And so therefore, there's nothing to really be sad about. To me, it was about, could I just be pulled through the uh, enormous weight of the book? And the answer is yes. I felt very little lag. It's bloated, but it is not overly padded. And by that, I mean that at no point did I want to set the book down and and stop reading. The way that, for example, last book, that chapter 17, chapter 18 really turned me off. Now, here, uh, one question, though. There were so many callbacks to so many things. The one that I couldn't figure out, you guys tell me, the first challenge, it was all these dragons coming back. And we know that the, the eldest Weasley works with those dragons. Is this Norbert? Is this the dragon that Hagrid had to give up in book one and it was so cute coming back being so ruthless? It's just a dragon. There are four different kinds of dragons, and it might be the same species of dragon, but it's not the same specific dragon. Why not? Why why, why wouldn't she do that? Honestly, it's like Grogu coming back as a giant monster and <laughs> spewing fire. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that'd be fun. It's called irony. I mean, I, I would enjoy that. Fair enough. I mean, Hagrid, this is why you don't raise dragons. Right. There you go. Yeah. Um, it's the... <laughs> Talk about, you guys are complaining about all these minor characters. That's a pretty minor character to have to worry about coming back is Norbert. <laughs> it was just a thought. It was the one time where I felt like she didn't underline the point of look at who I, what I did, look at who I resurrected. I was like, I'm not sure. Is this, I just wanted to feel the room. So, all right. All right. Well, we will be getting into this more over at Now Playing when we review the movie. Now, Fortunately, here's where I feel like the books and nachos is great because we were able to discuss stuff that isn't going to be in the movie. The movie cuts out a lot, including any mention of house elves and such. So what does that make the movie? You can find out and support independent podcasting at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So guys, thank you for reading with me. We will be back next week with Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I would suggest that you start reading now. (laughs) It's Mm. a long one. (laughs) Yeah, this one's like 200 pages more. Can't wait. Until next time, support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. Actually, of what happens later, and especially what happens in the last 150 pages. I have no idea why my wife would do that. <laughs> that was um, okay.
kind of feels like Belinda Carlisle, right? Yeah, we're like NPR. All of a sudden, we finish the thought, music comes up, and they have a nice little segment. (laughs) Weird. Okay, then.